Hey friends, this is Hannah Wedger, an agriculture teacher in St. Paul, Minnesota, land of 10,000 lakes, and I'm here to talk all things agriculture education related. Curriculum, classroom management, FFA, career development events, SAEs, and whatever else you want to hear about. It's basically me sharing chapters from my book of agriculture with all of you. Today I have Amy Hager on with us. She's an ELL teacher and is gonna, going to help us understand more about the world of ELL, so English language learners, and give us some tips and tricks that we can implement in our classroom. So let's dig in. Hey friends, I'm here today with Amy Hager. Admittedly, she is um, my cousin and one of my good friends, but she's also an ELL teacher at a public school in the metropolitan area of Minnesota. Um, so I'm gonna turn it over to her and let her introduce herself a little bit and talk about how she came to be an ELL teacher. Well, thank you for that warm introduction and thank you for inviting me on here today. I am quite honored. Absolutely. <laughs> So a little bit about my background, I uh, am in my sixth year, just getting near wrapping up my sixth year of teaching um, as an ELL teacher, and I have learned a bit along the way, but um, how did I get started? Well, originally I was on the path to become an elementary education teacher, and I was kind of shopping around schools um, with good education programs and on one of my college tours one of the um, admission counselors had mentioned that the ELL field was growing and that there was going to be a lot of uh, potential jobs opening up in that field. And she also mentioned it's very difficult for elementary ed to get in right away. And I just, I liked the idea that there was some potential job security in this field, but um, a little bit more um, kind of from the heart at our school that we, we went to high school together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At our school, we did have we did have a small, um, admittedly small, but uh, present population of English learners, and I just saw a lot of those students in my classes not not really be supported, and and that was something that, in my heart, I I kind of felt as a calling, and so, it was nice to have a pragmatic reason to come into this profession, but also a reason that really made me feel like I was doing something something good in the field of education. So I love that. I actually did not know how you came to be an agriculture, or not an agriculture teacher, an EL teacher. So that's that's really cool. It doesn't surprise me though, because you have a huge heart. <laughs> um, so let's kind of dig in. Um, I think that it's important before we start that we kind of define the different um, terms or pieces when we talk about EL. So, um, EL, ELL, MLL, um, what's most common now, all that good stuff. So I'm going to turn it over to you because you're the expert. (laughs) So I would say most traditionally, many people, um, know of the programming as ESL or ESL teachers. And that just uh, simply stands for English as a second language. And as um, we've moved toward looking at our learners from an asset-based lens, we've we've kind of changed the terminology. So using English as a second language um, sometimes discounts that many of our students have many different heritage languages. And so the terminology has kind of shifted throughout the years. So um, most commonly we've, we refer to a student as an English learner or an English language learner, so E-L or E-L-L, that 
E-L-L, that extra L is just for language learners. So some people have shortened it up. And some larger school districts in our uh, metropolitan area, as well as some other, um, other states have started shifting to the term MLL, which is a multilingual learner. And again, it's just a way to recognize the heritage uh, languages and really start out by identifying our students as having, having an asset rather than a deficit. I love that. And our district has moved towards the MLL. So we were EL or ELL and now we've moved towards the MLL. And I like being able to um, be supportive of those students and really, I mean, a lot of them know more than just two languages. It's three or four languages. And so it's, I think it's a fitting term. Um, and additionally, so you, um, as, as teachers in schools yourselves, potentially, you might hear some other acronyms. There's so many acronyms in education. (laughs) Um, so ESL again is the type of programming that you might hear. Um, ELD just, uh, stands for English language development. Um, and so there are different types of programming at each, each, each different district, excuse me. Mm that I can talk about if um, if that's something that we want to go into depth. But there are a lot of acronyms, and a quick web search can help identify some of those <laughs> if you have any um, questions yeah. about that. Google's our friend. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when a student comes... When a student comes into the programming, how are they put into different levels or how are their levels identified? So it all starts when a student enrolls in a school district. Uh, by law... Um, law being the Every Student Succeeds Act um, and and Title 11 uh, of our U.S. Constitution states that all students are required to fill out some form of a home language survey. And so Mm -hmm. this is kind of to screen all students for potential uh, uh, language needs. And so if a student has a language other than English that they right on that form. They are put into contact with an ELL teacher, a director, it depends on the district and how they uh, how they approach that. But then they are uh, given a screener assessment. In Minnesota, it's uh, we use the WIDA screener. Not all states in the United States are um, a part of this WIDA consortium, but each state does have their um, version of a language screener. Sure. And so that screener will give students a a proficiency level um, calibrated pretty closely to where their English language proficiency is. And it does target social language, but also academic language. And so with that piece of information, along with information the family provides, if they have prior schooling, we we try to get um, a holistic approach to what students need, then they are uh, placed into appropriate programming based on what the district offers. Okay. And what levels, uh, what are the different levels that are offered? So again, that WIDA is the resource that okay. Minnesota teachers would want to refer to. And uh, WIDA uses a six level, a six proficiency level scale. So uh, one would be like emerging English learners, emerging bilingual is a term that I've also heard used lately. Uh, and so um, moving up levels one, two, three, and then four, five, and six is approaching proficiency level. Six yeah. would be native like proficiency. Okay. And typically, like when do students exit the programming? What, at what level? So 
Exit criteria in Minnesota is set by the state, and um, so you would need to have a composite score, and I'm going to put some numbers out here. Yeah. Um, I believe it's a composite score of a 5 and no domains lower than a 4.5. It's changed recently. We may have to update this. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, those numbers sound similar to what I have heard as well. Yeah, so, um, and what would happen is they would be exited from programming by meeting that criteria on the access for ELL mm-hmm. assessment. Um, and then the state requires that we monitor the students for two years following exit. Sure. Um, on the access test, what are the things that they are tested on? I know that it's like reading and I don't know. Yeah, so uh, they test four domains. They test reading, writing, speaking, and listening. Okay. And so it's broken into four different tests. It's extremely time intensive for these students. It's it's extremely rigorous um, mm-hmm. and they've they've changed the way that it's scored in the past couple of years so it's even more difficult to move up in proficiency level than it was in the past yeah um and so this is minnesota specific but other states probably have similar testing available or that they do yeah so if you go to the WIDA website WIDA.WISC, w-i-s-c.us it will you can search for a map and uh, many of the states are consortium members Mm-hmm. Uh, the states that are not, for example, California is not, uh, but they have their own rigorous language assessments that are very similar to what we use. Sure. Okay. Thank you. Um, we kind of went a little off script there, but that's fine because I think that stuff's important, especially when you're thinking about being an, uh, I know for myself being an agriculture teacher and uh, when these students have to take these access tests and they are pulled out of your class multiple times, it can be kind of frustrating. Um, but I think it's really important to be able to understand that these students are doing a seriously rigorous task um, that they don't want to do either most of the time, that they're not super excited about either. And so just being really supportive of them and um in this testing, I think is important. Uh, so just kind of moving forward, forward, when we're thinking about English language learners, what are the different stages of language acquisition? Um, or if I were to say this a little bit easier, like, or a little bit pared down, how do students, like, what are the different levels of learning or different ways that they develop language? So for this question, I would like to refer to um, something is called called the Bix and the Kelps in the ELL world, and so I have more acronyms. So we can think of language acquisition, at least second language acquisition, um, as consisting of kind of two different frameworks. So we have the basic interpersonal communication skills, the Bix, yeah, and that's kind of our social conversation skills, our ability to to have conversations with others and get along in our day to day tasks. Yeah. Um, and then there's the CALPS, the cognitive, uh, the cognitive language acquisition, and that's what we consider kind of the academic language. Sure. And so traditionally, it's uh, widely accepted that those BICs, those conversational skills, come fairly rapidly mm-hmm. because we're immersed in it mm-hmm. in, our, in our inside and outside of our academic careers. And so they say 
uh, by about two years, the basic interpersonal communication skills have been pretty well developed. Sure. Um, so those academic language skills, however, uh, do come a little bit later, and they save to fully develop. It's within that five to seven year, uh, five to seven year frame, and so. A student, uh, a traditional English learner student, uh, can be expected to reach native-like proficiency at about five years, which that's, uh, interestingly enough, and not coincidentally, that that's how long that schools receive funding per pupil, so that five to (laughs) six-year range. Sure, that makes sense. Um, I think that there is something when we think about like stages of language acquisition, one thing that I've heard before is especially in like the pre-production and early production of their language acquisition, um, there may be some time where students are experiencing like a silent period or just very few words that they know in English. And I think it's really important to um, not confuse their lack of words for um, how smart they are. Um, I don't know if you have a good expression on your face. I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit, but I know that that's something that, um, I think just is really important that we are aware of that oftentimes these students are so incredibly smart and, um, it's just the language that's a barrier for them. Um, and so I don't know if you have anything that you want to say about that or not. Yeah. So I think, And this kind of goes into some of the misconceptions about English learners, but I think it's really important to know that every student coming in to our classes is an individual, and that silent period is a real thing, and there isn't a prescribed amount of days or months that a student is going to remain in that. It's, It's very individualized, and so I think it's important to develop strong relationships with all of our students, but Mm -hmm. to really get to know uh, where our students are coming from, what their background might be, and just give them time and space to be able to uh, use that receptive language, the reading and the listening, um, and just be gracious with their productive language, at least early on. I I think it's important to provide students with challenges, but we also don't want them to be overwhelmed and, and kind of shut down because of because they're required to be put on the spot with their their speaking in particular. Absolutely. There was one training that I did this fall um, with my school district where they had put up a picture of the the water cycle. And so they had this visual up on the board and then the um, idea was that you had to explain the water cycle without using words that had the letters A, E, and R or something like that. And I tell you what, that was so hard. Um, And they had done it first, so explain the water cycle, and they didn't provide any visuals. So they said, explain the water cycle, you can't use these letters or words with these letters in it. So I'm like, okay, how do I say this? And it took me a long time to think about it and then find words to be able to use. And then when they had the visual, it was a little bit easier, but it was still um, somewhat difficult. And so it really got me into the, um, like, to be able to kind of put myself into um, my students' shoes who are EL students. And obviously, um, it's not the exact same for everyone, but it just gave me a little bit better of a snapshot of what, what it might be like to sit in an agriculture classroom or any classroom where you... Uh, 
don't have the native language and you're learning that native language while you're learning new concepts so yeah and with the, like the example of the water cycle that the students might have a really strong grasp of that concept but again to be able to express that you need to build in a lot of supports and time to make yes. that input comprehensible. Yeah. And if you're going to expect production, you've got to really scaffold it and make sure that students are given the tools that they need to be able to, to do that. Yeah, and I I will tell you for sure the being able to explain it with and without the visual, like the visual helped me so much. And so I think that's really important with students, which we'll probably talk about in a little bit here. Um, what are some common misconceptions about the English language learners or maybe some specific roadblocks to watch out for? So I would say uh, one common misconception is that all English learners are the same. And I, I urge your audience to really think about these um, individuals who are English learners kind of change it. They're not, that's not their main identity as an English learner. They're so much more than that. And so I think it's really easy as, for example, a content area high school teacher to really uh, get frustrated because you've got a lot of content to get through. You've got standards you've got to meet. Your students have to show proficiency on these assessments. And I think it's very easy to get into this deficit mind frame. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very important to try to look at a student's proficiency level, figure out what they can do and build upon those assets. And yeah, yeah, I'll leave it at that for now. <laughs> Any other um, common misconceptions that you can think about or that you want to talk about? Um, I would say that a lot of teachers with whom I've worked have felt that they need to lower the bar, lower mm -hmm. expectations for English learners, mm -hmm. uh, students who are English learners, and I really caution, I caution that because students, uh, again, my frame is high school, I know yours is too, Yeah. Uh, but for students at all, at all grade levels, our students who are English learners are capable of high level, complex thought, and we need to honor that. Um, again, that comes with kind of the scaffolding that we provide to allow students to meet high, high expectations. But I don't think it's important that we lower the bar. I think it's important that we raise that scaffolding to help students meet those expectations and honor the growth that students do make. It might not be the progression that we want it to be, but yeah. I think honoring growth and, and um, being able to demonstrate growth is, is a really important thing for, for us to be able to do as teachers. Yeah, that's great. Um, what are some ways to support EL students in our classrooms? So that is going to depend on proficiency level. That's also going to depend a little bit on, well, a lot of bit on their prior schooling. Mm -hmm. And so again, it comes down to first getting to know who is in front of you. And sure. I know, I know that's one of the first things we do as teachers is get to know our students. Some of our large classes, I know a lot of us have large class sizes in the content area, and it's sometimes difficult to do that, but I do urge you to try to connect first with family, get mm -hmm. the information that you can, um, set up a partnership with parents or guardians as soon as possible, um, and work closely with 
your ELL teachers at, mm-hmm. at your school or within your district to kind of help you with that specific student. But again, it's going to depend on the student's uh, language proficiency level and their um, their their schooling mm-hmm. in the past as well, their literacy level and their native languages, that type of a thing. And so in general, though, it's a really good idea to provide a lot of visual supports, um, to be very cognizant of your input, um, how long you're speaking, what you are trying to have students kind of digest and yeah. ingest, and then be very aware of how that relates to what output you're expecting. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to depend on the task, it's going to depend on the content area, but just trying to be very intentional in your your input and how you're scaffolding students' output as well. Sure. Uh, do you want to share with our guests a little bit... Um, they don't have an agriculture teacher at the school that they teach at, but they do have um, uh, tech not, or tech classes that they do teach. Um, and so I was hoping that maybe you could share a little bit about the small engines teacher that you've been working with and some of the accommodations that you've helped them make in their classroom. Yeah, so one of the biggest concerns was that for students who are emerging bilingual or emerging multilingual, safety has been a really big concern for our teachers. And I, I agree, I think it's very important that everybody is on the same page on what safety procedures need to be followed. Uh, and so what we did is we, t- we took a look at what the teacher already had. Yeah. And so we um, worked with our uh, cult- different cultural liaisons to try to get some of that translated into native languages. Mm-hmm. And for students who were not uh, literate in their first language, she had students um, come up with videos. She had student produce videos on, on safety procedures. And instead of doing a written safety procedure assessment, for example, she had them do it uh, in person. And oh, I think that great. was a really, it, it was a great way. It was, again, time intensive for her a little bit, but she was able to really see that these students understood what safety meant in the class and how to do it. And yeah. so that's just one example. So again, um, providing the resources in uh, native language if possible and if that works for the student. Mm-hmm. Again, it's important to know if they are literate in that first language. Um, and then providing those visual supports. In this case, it was a video. Yeah. Um, and that will carry her through years to come. That's something mm-hmm. that she can use. Um, and also creating kind of visual checklists for, yeah. for students to work through when they're working on an independent task. Lots of photographs are really nice to have for those, like what should the task look like like at each step yeah and you were talking about small engines so she the teacher there had like this is what you do first and then a picture and then this is what you do second in a picture which I not even just I mean that can be in any class really Mm -hmm. I think about um like in my plant science class and some of the things that we do or floral design the Mm -hmm. different steps and being able to take a picture um, it gets me kind of fired up. It makes me want to <laughs> do that with some of my stuff. And like you said, um, once you, it's time intensive, obviously upfront, but then you have those resources to be able to use, use year after year as well. So. Well, and those types of things are helpful for a variety of students. <laughs> yeah. It's just be- best practices across the board. Like not just our EL students, but all, all of our students, um, can benefit from, 
um, some of these accommodations. Um, so we talked a little bit about support, but do you have like five best tips and tricks for, um, for us to be able to use? Yeah. So, um, I would say the first thing is to have strong routines Mm -hmm. in your class. I know that, um, that's something that I, I've been working on in my six years of teaching is just to get specific routines down because a predictable routine is comforting for all students but for students who are struggling um, with the academic language of the class it's nice to have something that they can count on and feel really kind of um, successful in sure Uh, and then as as that's also just a really nice way to kind of prevent some of the classroom management things (laughs) that can happen And so, again, that's good for all students. Um, I would say another tip and trick would be color coding. So an example of something that I use is uh, for, so I the way that I've set up my grade book, for example, Mm -hmm. I have assessments and I have classwork. And so I've color coded things that are that higher percentage of the grade to be pink. Uh, The classwork is green. And then supplementary resources are blue. And so students can kind of color code their own binder. Mm. Um, color coding also can be helpful when you're using um, like writing on the board. For oh, example. okay, cool. So like I'll have um, sentence frames in, in my class are blue. And so students know that mm-hmm. if it's blue, it's a sentence frame that they can use in their written or speak, uh, spoken responses. And you're talking about, so color coding like different sheets, like sheets of paper are different colors. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yep. Okay. So that's just, so just attaching meaning to color is yeah. I guess the tip that I'm um, trying to get to with that one. That's awesome. Yeah. So we have routines, we have kind of attaching meaning to color. Yeah. Um, I would say a third tip that I would suggest using is, um, and I kind of referred to this earlier, but using uh, sentence frames uh, yeah. and um, intentional prompts to help elicit the response that you are looking for. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we, we offer students very broad question and when we don't get the specific response back because for whatever reason, um, we are unable to determine if a student has met proficiency. And I think if we're a little bit more intentional in, in starting uh, or providing mm-hmm. a, a sentence starter, um, we can kind of elicit a more specific response. And that mm-hmm. helps us to determine if students are meeting our expectation or not. Mm-hmm. And so that does take some, again, some intentional thought, but it's, it's a really nice scaffold to be able to provide. So I just started using um, sentence structures or sentence frames um, two years ago, I think it was, and I found it to be really helpful um, for my students, especially like on those short answer questions. So um, an example of one might be like two products of photosynthesis are, and then leaving leaving that open for them to be able to answer um, instead of you know, what are the products of photosynthesis? And I really see that those sentence frames or those sentence structures help those students build that academic language too and like are understanding how to be able to write out a sentence in um, in English. So I think that's great. Yeah. Um, so um, we have 
the routines. We yep. have the color coding. We have the sentence frames. So a fourth uh, suggestion that I might offer uh, is to... Lost my train of thought here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we had routines. We had um, attaching color to um, different meanings. We had the sentence frames and structures. Um, I'm trying to think of some other stuff. So I, I would say what I was thinking is, so pr- providing visual supports. I was just actually going to say that. <laughs> and so this looks different in the content uh, area. It looks different all over the place, but there are ways to support students in uh, with visual supports pretty much all over the board. So in the case of the auto uh, our auto tech teacher, it would be having photographs of the specific things that um, mm-hmm. are desired. Um, in ELA, for example, you might have um, symbols or different vis- visual aids to help you think of concept co- or con- complex concepts. Um, in social studies, you might have primary primary documents or images uh, of things that might be helpful to explain those concepts. Con- oh my gosh. <laughs> Complex <Cons>. concepts. <laughs> and so just having a visual, like you mentioned with the water cycle, just having a visual to be able to enhance meaning is, is a really helpful tool. Yeah. I like that one too. I, um, three years ago now did Envoy training. And one of the things that I learned with that is to have visuals on the board to go along with, um, directions and procedures, uh, which I never did as a as a high school teacher because it's like, well, the kids should know if I say you need to pick up and turn your stuff in that it goes here. Um, but man, I tell you what, if you are, you know, doing something on doing some type of project and you have first you do this with a visual next to it, then you do this with a visual next to it. Finally, you're going to do this and then a visual next to it. And then you have procedures for this is what you do when you're all done. First, you know, you clean up. You're going to put your materials away in this area. You're going to turn your stuff into drawer number two. And you're going to, um, you know, if you finish early, you're going to do X, Y, Z. Um, with a visual to go along with it, it is so helpful. Again, best practices, not just for our EL students, but for all of our students. And honestly, it takes a lot off of your plate when you have those visual directions on the board to be able to just kind of point to them and let students be able to really visually see them and go with it. So. Yeah, and those routines do take some time to really set up, but it's worth the investment. Yeah, I agree. And I have a, a couple of our teachers um, do this fabulously. Um, one of my um, bestie co-workers, I will say, <laughs> she does it every single day. She has a PowerPoint slide and she just edits it. And so she has those visual procedural directions ready to go. Um, and she just edits it and it's so easy peasy. I'm old school. I like to write on my board. And so I take a little bit more time. Um, but either way, I just think it's really, really supportive of our students. All right, so one last tip or trick for us. What do yeah. you got? So I, and it, again, this is kind of the planning with the end in mind, but be really explicit in what you would like your students to do. 
So providing, for example, if you've got an assessment coming up, provide a rubric early on mm-hmm. and, and make sure that students understand what the expectation is. Um, if you can provide an example, a, a mentor text in, in a language um, or in, in like an ELE class or in, in a, like a social studies class, to provide some examples in like a math class, uh, provide what students are supposed to be doing so that they have a kind of a, a schema or a concept in their mind that they can kind of work toward. And it helps you then to be a little bit more intentional in how you're gonna scaffold them getting there, but they can then partner with you as well and, and try to help advocate for what they need to help them reach the desired goal. So this could be an, an assignment in a class or it could be working toward an end of semester project. Yeah. So just be very explicit in what's coming up. Give mm-hmm. students that advance notice. Let them know what their expectation is and then ask them, enlist them as partners to try to help uh, help them reach, reach that desired result. Yeah, I like that. And I have started doing... Um, like trying to do some little pre-teaching too. So um, in my introduction to agriculture class this last semester, I knew that we were going to talk about plant science. And so before we got into that unit, um, I put out a video that just kind of went through um, the different parts of the plant before we even got to the unit. So then students were able to kind of become just familiar with the topic before we jumped into it. Um, And so that kind of goes along the lines of what you were saying. Yeah, and it is nice because through that, I'm sure you've figured out some students are bringing in background knowledge that you didn't even know they had. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, one other thing that I want to touch on, and this was um, really instrumental for me when I um, moved to the school district that I teach in now, is to communicate with the EL teacher. And I was lucky enough to share a room with the um one of the ELL teachers at our school, shout out to Sarah, Sarah um, Schmidt de Carranza, uh, but she was awesome in being able to kind of help me um, with the ELL students that I had in my class. And she, because she had those students multiple times throughout the day, just knew them so well. And so she would say, um, you know, this works really good for this student. Oh, this doesn't work that great for this student. Try X, Y, Z. Um, she also taught me that it's okay to, um, have some fun with the students. She, um, will always have, uh, <laughs> I hope she's okay with me sharing this, but she'll have a sandal or a flip-flop in her drawer and pull it out when students are being a little rowdy. Um, mainly for the Latino students, but say that she has a chancla ready to throw. Um, And so it's fun uh, because it's students who, you know, that's part of their culture. They kind of perk up and go, who has a chancla? Because my mom throws the chancla at me. Um, And so if you don't know what a chancla is, you can Google it and you'll find some pretty funny memes of uh, Latino, um, typically mothers taking off their shoes and shaking it or chucking it at alligators or kids or whatever else so it's fun um but yeah I kind of went off on a tangent there communicate with the Yale teacher they have so much knowledge and they can really help you out with absolutely so much absolutely I think it, it it's always really great idea to work as a team because yeah. you a student might have a particularly good relationship with one teacher yes and it's really important that some I mean we don't want to 
undermine the confidence that students have in us. Maybe they share some things that they don't want shared with other teachers, but I think if we're able to kind of leverage those things that like an ELL teacher, because he or she spends so much time with a particular student, they figured out what works. They know those kind of tips and tricks for those particular students. That's, yeah, very important to um, kind of leverage that, that collaboration. Um, and I know as, as an ELL teacher, I'm always willing to partner with different teachers. I love sitting down and brainstorming how to scaffold a particular assignment or assessment. And it's really helpful when you are working with somebody one-on-one because you can then try to put some of these suggestions into that content area or that frame of reference. Yeah. One other thing that I want to talk about quick, and then we'll go to resources that you have for us. And this was um, admittedly a, a kind of a misstep that I took um, with some of my EL students. But I oftentimes say culturally unique vocabulary, like it's raining cats or cats and dogs, or take a stab at it. Um, and I have had students who are EL students that are like, what is this crazy lady in the front of the classroom talking about? Um, so my only caution is just to be a little bit aware of some of the things that you might say that are kind of unique to our vocabulary or our slang or different things like that. And, yeah. And what they might mean. Yeah. That, so that kind of goes with that comprehensible input idea, yeah. making sure that what you are providing to students is intentional and that takes some, that takes some practice yeah. to be aware of your rate of speech mm-hmm. and to be aware of what you're saying. And, and not that I say that you have to have have a script, but but be aware of those idioms or metaphors that we we so often call upon in our own yeah. conversation. Just be aware of them. And I think you mentioned earlier, like being able to laugh with your students. Yeah. Like if you've got those relationships built up, students will feel potentially maybe feel safe enough mm-hmm. to raise their hand and say, "What do you mean?" Yeah. It's raining <laughs> cats and dogs. Um, yeah. And so it's always fun. You should see my board at the end of the day where we draw out what some of these things say and what they actually mean. I could probably publish a a photo essay that would be pretty funny. I know you've said one before that embarrassed and then embarrassada. Embarrassada. So yeah, it's a false (laughs) cognate. So in Spanish, particularly in English, we share linguistic roots and so a lot of our words are similar um which we call cognates but some of them are false cognates (laughs) and embarrassed obviously we know what it means to be embarrassed and embarrassada means pregnant a woman is pregnant (laughs) and so that's one of those funny false cognates that it's it's if you've got the relationship with your students it can be pretty funny to kind of go into depth with those yeah I like that All right, so what support and or resources are available for our listeners? So I would encourage you, uh, first and foremost, if you haven't yet, get to know your ELL teachers at your school or district. Um, It's really important to be able to work as a team within your setting. Um, But for some supplementary professional development, I recommend, so I referenced earlier the WIDA website. It's WIDA.WISC, W-I-S-C. US, and that has um, the language proficiency levels, and there is something called the can-do descriptors, and yes. I really like that resource because it really helps 
teachers see what students can do mm-hmm. at proficiency levels. And that's just a really nice way to start out figuring out, okay, so I have this task that I want students to be able to do. What can they do at this proficiency level and how can I get them where I need them to be with what they can do already? And so that's one of my favorite resources on that website. And they do have a lot of other resources. I recommend just looking around on their resource section of the page Mm -hmm. and finding things that might be applicable to your setting. Um, For those of you who are in content area courses that require kind of current events or um, culturally relevant uh, resources, which I think we all could use a little bit more of. Tolerance.org is a really great resource to help embed. So it's not particular to uh, language learners, but it is just particular to being more culturally relevant. You can search by topic. You can search by uh, different different uh, so you can search by different cultures you can find all sorts of readings and learning activities that are just a little bit more culturally responsive and then um the state of new york has done a lot of work to make a lot of public resources available for teachers they have entire curricula available Uh, for math in English with a lot of resources embedded and I recommend just taking a look at it to see how they've approached some of their scaffolding and differentiation but they also have a lot of resources for um, the Engage New York particularly has a lot of resources for helping all students uh, engage in complex uh, discourse, complex Uh, thinking. And I know my district, for example, uses the Charlotte Danielson framework for teaching in our our assessments. And they have videos that they have composed uh, that help teachers meet those uh, levels of proficiency themselves. But it's also helpful to be... um, We've got somebody at the door here. Um, so anyway, they've got a lot of cool videos as well. And so I would I would just say that um, NYSED or Engage NY, and I think Hannah's going to provide some links to these um, as well later on. Yes, you'll see them on my Instagram um, because I do not have time to do a blog yet. <laughs> All right. Uh, any more resources? Are we... uh, I'm going to stick with that for now. Okay, great. Um, is there anything else I um, should have asked you, but I haven't? You know, I think um, what I would recommend is if anybody has a question, mm-hmm. that they uh, reach out to you. You can maybe refer them to me. Yeah, I would love absolutely. to be able to provide some. It's it's hard talking broad level when yeah. every student is so different. Yeah, so I would love to, if you, I have some experience with it, just with working in the district, and then obviously I have... Um, Amy here that is the expert Um, so if you have a question on like how to teach something specific or maybe you have a like a very specific um, EL question that you want answered you can always DM me and we can can help you along there Um, so now we're getting to the I like kind of the fun part and I've stole this I said this before but I stole this from another podcast just because I really enjoyed being able to get to know the guest speakers a little bit more um, so when we think about your teaching career, who has had the most influence on it? 
So I would say uh, my college advisor, Mm -hmm. uh, her name's Keisha, and she really, she helped me uh, get set up with my, I, I student taught in Germany. I was able to student teach in Germany and she was, she made it happen for me. She was uh, somebody that I always came to when I was teaching in a different district. Now I actually am under her leadership in my current district. And she's just always somebody that I can go to um, to ask the, the tough questions that we all have as teachers. And she's always there to provide a, a listening ear. Um, but she also holds me and all my colleagues to a really high standard. And so I, I appreciate I appreciate the confidence that she's helped me build throughout the years in different ways. All right, next question. And this is because I, I like to think of myself as a foodie, although I'm sure there are many people out there who are more of a foodie than I am. But what's your favorite go-to order um, at your hometown restaurant? So the restaurant trips are few and far between now with my <laughs> young toddler. But um, my husband and I really try to get out a couple times a year. <laughs> One of the restaurants that we seem to frequent is Mallard's. Uh, we go to there are a couple of them now, um, but we like to go to the one in Bayport on the Saint Croix, and um, it's always good for a really nice lobster roll. Um, so they just put one in our hometown now too, uh, and we went there for happy hour last week, and they have like little cheeseburger sliders, which I was like, oh, they're just gonna be like every. Everybody else's cheeseburger sliders, and they're so good. Um, so it's a great restaurant if you're in Minnesota to check check out. And like Amy said, there's a couple different locations. Um, and then what are three of your simple pleasures? Well, I would say the first sip of coffee mm. when you wake up in the morning, <laughs> when it just kind of sinks into your soul and it's still hot it's still hot (laughs) yeah um another simple pleasure is to be able to sleep as long as I want without having to wake up to an alarm yes um and so that's this week is currently spring break and I have had I've been able to do that a couple of times so it's either an alarm or a toddler waking me up (laughs) but just being able to wake up when I want to wake up um and then Obviously, the time of year spring is on my mind. Mm-hmm. So um, just a fresh cut bouquet of flowers is yeah. just something that makes my heart happy. Me too, especially seeing all of the tulips and daffodils right now and just really, really brightens my day for sure. All right. Well, thank you so much for um, being on today. And again, if anyone has any questions, just feel free to DM me or you can send me an email and we'll get you connected with Amy. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. You just finished listening to episode three of Egg with Miss Wedger, where I'm sharing chapters of my book of agriculture with all of you. I hope you enjoyed listening and learned a little bit more about English language learners and how to provide support in your classroom. For show notes, please visit my Instagram at Miss Wedger for info about our chat today. Um, If you have any questions or ideas on topics um, that you want me to dig in and cover, or if you want to be a guest, you can send me an email at eggwithmisswedger at gmail.com. I hope you have a great week and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye, everybody.